What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different, completely guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, that's funny, and I'll tell you why, Nick. That's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, you can All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William A. Navarro. And today we're going to be talking about a serial killer named Lonnie Franklin Jr., also known as the Grim Sleeper, which I would submit is a stupid nickname. Um, <laughs> or is it a nickname? A moniker, I guess, is what we'll call it. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say that that nickname was probably given to him by the media, and that's how most serial killers get known, because they have these these nicknames, and the Grim Sleeper seems right out of a horror movie, right? Yeah, they really outdid themselves with that one, although I, I feel like it's trying a little too hard. You know, it's a little too kind of too punny for me. but Yeah, since it's not true either. And we'll get to that why it's not even true, but we'll go with that for now. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into all that. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. That is at Death Row Diaries for both those. And we're on Patreon at Death Row Diaries. Feel free to submit your listener questions. We have one today uh, coming from Celso from Glendale. He wants to know... This is a weird question. I'll try and summarize it. So if there is a, uh, if you picture all the people that you've served time with on death row, and let's say there was a, uh, a, a an MMA octagon tournament, and I don't know how that would work exactly, who would come out on top? I guess what he's asking is who's the the toughest, meanest guy that you've encountered? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a hard question because most of the guys here will bring a knife with them and they don't allow a knife in MAA fights. And, you know, you know MAA fights have, have rules. Guys in prison don't fight by rules. So that's kind of an interesting question and also hard to answer. But, um, look, there's several guys I've run across that would, they would probably eat up most of those guys in the UFC because... There aren't many rules in regular fights. These guys fight dirty. It's all about winning. There is no, uh, look, you can't hit the guy when he's down. You can't do all these different things. You know, there's a number of guys that are no longer with us. They're actually dead now. But I've run across a couple of guys like, um, well, his name was Monster. And he was a made guy. He was a pretty scary guy in the fight, out the fight, with knives, without knives. So in my opinion, the scariest guy that I've ever met would be Eddie Munster. And that was his name, Eddie Munster Romero. And uh, this guy, it wasn't about his size. It was about the intensity and the look in his eyes. And I talked about him in my book, Escape Artist. He was by far the scariest guy. And one of the questions he asked me the first time he saw me in a fight with somebody, and I was fighting for my life, basically. Uh, he found that very interesting, and he sat down, and while we were talking, he asked me, have you ever thought who would win between the two of us? And he had this grin on his face that said it all. He wanted to know who was better between the two of us. We never found out, but that's the answer to the question. Eddie Munster Romero was the scariest guy I've ever met. Yeah. That's when I just, I go kind of humble. I just say, yeah, I think you'd probably win, you know, but I, I might say it like a little bit dickishly. So, it, so I wasn't totally admitting 
that I might lose, you know? That's how I'd handle it. Um, Actually, you know, like, when you said that to me, I smiled, and that was all I did. I just smiled at him, and his response was, I thought so. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks for the question, Celso. So, Lonnie Franklin Jr., there's not a lot uh, about this guy's early life, but he's from South Central Los Angeles. He's an African-American guy, you know, born in 1952, so coming of age in, in pretty tough times in South Central, really bad times. So I'm, I'm only assuming that he had a kind of disadvantaged, poor upbringing, but that's just an assumption. And the, I guess the first thing that puts him on the radar is he joins the military. Did you, did you read about this incident? Yeah, no, I actually knew about this because it, it was talked about in the yard when he first got here. And I know that he was in the army and he was accused and convicted of him and a couple of his buddies of gang raping a 17 year old kid in in Germany, I believe it was. And the, the girl was basically just minding her own business and these guys pulled up next to her and um, asked her for directions to where they wanted to go. And they offered her a ride. And that ride proved to be really bad for this kid because um, they immediately put a knife to her throat and these guys repeatedly raped this kid. And, uh, and this actually kind of shows a bit of Franklin's, um, he's obviously upset at women. He he doesn't like them, but this girl is able to kind of talk him up and feeds into his ego. And he actually gives her his phone number. And that's how they catch this guy because they left her in the field when they raped her. Right. She pretends, I guess that she enjoyed it. I don't, I don't even know how you could be convinced of something like that. It's, it's so implausible, but I'm getting the feeling maybe he's not very bright. He looks kind of dumb. You know, we'll get into it a bit later, but frankly, a lot of these crimes he was committing, he didn't have to be smart because it seemed like no one really cared. You know, they, they didn't have a lot of resources going. And obviously, he was probably doing this kind of thing before he went into the military, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, he was, he was still young when he went into the military. So, you know, in my opinion, he was, he probably already had the drive in him. It took a situation to kind of bring it out, and that was the gang rape of this, well, child. And these type of situations breed a particular type of man. You have to be wired a certain way. I am positive that the other men that were involved in that rape did not take their sickness, their habits to the next level, which is to become a serial killer. It takes a specific guy. There are many rapists. There are serial rapists in this world, in this country, in this state that continue to rape. But, uh, but 99.9% of them do not graduate to become a serial killer. So this guy was wired for this already. And, you know, this rape is, it's kind of a, a send-off for him. He, he kind of understands, but he also understands that if he leaves them alive, he's going to get caught. So can I ask you a question? Why did this incident come up um in, in the yard it's a it's a horrifying incident but why this when wasn't this after he was already convicted of of murdering um i think 11 women yeah well it was 17 people but and, and there's many more cases he's been um looked at and implicated in uh but on that later but when he, came, when he got here to death row, he immediately went to a protective custody yard, um, which I'm not on. However, as I've mentioned before, I worked on the ADA yard, the American Disabilities Yard, and most of the guys there, which now is Yard 7, were and are 
serial uh, rapists, serial killers, and he was there. So I got a chance to really look at him closely, listen to his conversations, but more than anything, I was kind of a fly on the wall, for lack of a better word, in listening to his interactions with other people. But these serial killers, when they get in a yard with other serial killers, they don't hide their intentions or their their likes or any of those things. They basically seek what they're looking for. And one of the first things I noticed about him was that he was not afraid to give opinions about women or of seeking a, a certain type of pornography. There are certain guys here that used to sell it and can get a hold of it. And this guy was searching for it right away. And his mainstay was he wanted to make sure there were African-American women. He wanted to make sure that they, his words, that they looked and um, that they looked and gave the impression of being used. That was his term. And the reason I know this particular term was because the guy who was buying it from him, I pulled him up and asked him exactly what it Lonnie asked him. And he told me exactly what he asked for. So he's kind of reliving his killings, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. These guys get a death row, and they're not hiding who they are anymore. They may hide it to the public. If you talk to them on the phone or they come visit you, they turn to a different person. But while they're on the yard and they're conducting business or pleasure, they are who they really are. They don't hide it from many people. That's why it's so easy for me to have gotten close to these guys and listen to them. You know, this guy was, you know, he lived in the community that he was, which is another rarity. He was actually living in the community where he was raping and killing. I mean, he spent, when he got out of the Army in um, 1975, I believe it was, he went right back to his neighborhood. And it was the, his first killing that the police believe, or law enforcement believe, was um, in 1984. And that was Sharon Alicia, and I'm gonna mess this name up because I'm horrible with names, uh, Dismuk or Dismuk. And they believe that was his first victim. I'm willing to bet that is incorrect because these serial killers, rapists, don't begin from the very beginning of immediately raping and killing. It doesn't happen spontaneously. He was caught in 1974 for a gang rape, but we hear nothing between 1974 and 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1974, 1984. So I'm willing to bet that in between that time, he progressed. He raped a number of women, and I'm willing to bet that he killed before that first murder that he think he was guilty of, and obviously he was convicted of it, because serial killers don't just jump. There's a lot of things in between that happen to get him to the next level. And if you recall, he always shoots his victim. That's something that's practiced. That's not something that you just one day decide, I'm going to 25, I'm going to kill everybody this way. Hey, man. Hey, yeah, so pretty soon the bodies are going to start to pile up. And, you know, strangely enough, which, which led to a lot of complications that we'll get to, or, or at least confusion among law enforcement and the community at large. There were four or five other serial killers, African-American guys, operating in this general area at the same time, which is insane. Uh, but I kind of want to set the backdrop. 1985, South Central L.A. Uh, I was two years old living in Alaska, so I, I don't have a, a strong perspective of it, but obviously this is crack epidemic central, right? Yes, exactly. And this is basically what feeds this killer's appetite. Most of these women were uh, workers, sex workers, or at least he believed that they were. And, and that's what these guys normally do. They find women that are discarded, they don't, um, the police don't pay that much attention to them. And since they are sex workers, they're always going missing or they leave town. So not a lot of emphasis is placed on their case when somebody reports them missing. 
Um, of course, they, some of these are turning up dead. Um, but it is a fact that law enforcement sometimes don't give as much attention to these type of cases. But you're right, the body count begins to rise quickly. Um, and this guy, uh, he, is, he was convicted of 10 murders. However, they believe that his count is probably more around the 35 to 40. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, because frankly, I think there's an element that we should address. These are uh, African-American women and sex workers, many of them. And, uh, I think it was looked at as, uh, not a, not a huge priority. So we have, uh, August 12th, 1986, Henrietta Wright, again, shot in the chest and found, uh, covered in a mattress. He's dumping these, um, these bodies into alleyways, usually from his, from his, uh, van, his scary van. Barbara Ware, 23 years old, January 10th, 1987, again found under trash in an alleyway and shot in the chest. So what do you make of that, that MO? I mean, beyond the obvious, I mean, why, why the shooting in the chest? And I, I think I get it with the covering them in garbage, but what do you make of that? Well, I believe that it, it, he is not a big guy. As I said, I know this guy. He's not very big. He's not in good shape. He's not. And I've seen small guys that are very wiry and and built a certain way. This guy's the opposite. Kind of slow moving, kind of laid back, not imposing physically. So the gunshot is exactly what it is. It's a quick shot with a 25 caliber that immobilizes the person and more than likely because of the small caliber it ricochets inside their chest and kills them. The dumping of the bodies in alleys is him discarding the victim. He's a serial killer who has a hatred for women. He also has uh, a particular opinion of women. And unfortunately, some of these women confirmed it for him because they were sex workers. So this kind of draws into his whole, this is the place that women are, they belong in his life. One shot to the chest and discards them like trash He's basically living out his beliefs. You know, this seems so dystopian and it seems a bit surreal to me because, you know, this just keeps going. Uh, a 15 year old girl named uh, Princess Bertha is found strangled and beaten again in an alleyway, but a anonymous caller calls the police and says that he saw someone essentially discarding of a body and he records the license plate number of Lonnie Franklin's van in its entirety. And I, you know, to me that would seem like we're, we're, we got a case, you know, this shouldn't go on much longer, but nothing really comes of that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, this guy, he was a working guy. It's not like he was a drifter like Richard Ramirez or some of these guys that were just loners. This guy had a normal job. He had normal friends. Between 1981 and 1988, he worked for the city of Los Angeles. He was a mechanic in the, in the sanitation department. He also worked for the Los Angeles Police Department, if you can believe that. Well, a lot of the... Uh... A lot of these yeah, guys are, are worked, fascinated with law enforcement, right? Yeah, and a, and a bit of it is this guy, I don't think he got the job because he was trying to keep an eye to the mechanics department on the police department. It's just that it seems that he was well-versed in being invisible, and he did a good job of it. He, you know, they call him the grim sleeper because, obviously, they believe that he stopped killing between, like, 1985 and 2000. Um, however, that's actually not true. He did, he did kill between 1988, 89 and 2001 and 2002 when they thought that he stopped. That's where the moniker comes from. Um, and his list is huge. I mean, you've mentioned some of the names, uh, but there's Bernita Sparks, Mary Lowe, uh, Lucretia Jefferson, Inez Warren, 
Elisa Anderson, uh, Georgia Thomas. There's a, a man that he killed too, Thomas Sylvester Steele in 1986. He killed him as well. Um, this guy, he killed a man, and it wasn't because of obviously rape. This is something else. But uh, he was convicted because most of the time, DA's offices, they just bring the cases that are slam dunk. They have the DNA, and 10 murders is as good as 15, or 15 is as good as 35. It puts you on death row, it gives you a conviction, and the case is basically gone. But he was prolific in what he did. Um, his personality on death row tells me that. He did not stop because this drive in him wouldn't let him stop. When a man is on the yard and he's asking people, individuals that he believes that he's observed that are willing to sell photographs, when a man like that is asking you for family photos of other African American women, that is a guy who has a drive that's not going to stop. Lonnie, the grim sleeper, did not stop because he couldn't stop. He didn't want to stop. Wait, he's asking other uh, prisoners for like photos of their teenage daughters? Well, and not, not in those words. He asked for, see, a lot of guys in prison get photographs of girls that write them, women that write them, and, and the relationships break off. They don't, um, they don't work out. And these guys sometimes have a lot of photographs. Then some guys keep them because they like to keep them. This guy was going around with books of stamps, because that's a currency in prison, if the listeners don't know. Books of stamps are actual currency. A book of stamps that costs $11, you get you by $8 in merchandise in prison. So he was walking around with 30, 40 books all the time, asking guys if they had any photographs of women, African-American, that they would be willing to sell. If they were in uh, seductive positions or nude, even better, the price would go up. And he did this on a daily basis. This isn't something he did once a month or every few months. He did it every single day he was on the yard. It doesn't seem particularly covert, um, which is kind of another thing I wanted to ask you about because I watched a documentary about him and a lot of his buddies, Mm -hmm. you know, neighborhood buddies, drinking buddies, they were interviewing these guys and they're like, well, he was actually a, he was a pretty cool guy. You know, we had no idea. And it's like, okay, I don't think he was a cool guy. And I think that you're all probably a bunch of rapists, but he was married like for a long time with two children. Like, is there any way I'm incredulous that his wife wouldn't have suspected what was going on in his van? Well, remember he was operating in normal society. So he hit it well. I mean, that they found over a thousand photographs of women, girls, teenagers, some way underage, and they were nude. He had videos of, of women in extremely um, sexual positions. And the police department released 180 of those because the rest were just too graphic. He was doing it under the nose of everybody because nobody suspected. He wore one face in public, and he had another face when he went on his night excursions looking for women. And in here, they don't really care about that because they don't think anybody's watching. The last person he suspected watching him was me. So he acted normal, like he felt like um, acting. He had nothing to hide. He was already convicted of of several murders, 10 murders to be exact. He was on death row. He knew that because of his age, he would never see a gas chamber, but he would never see the streets again either. So he didn't care anymore. He allowed the mask to fall off and he acted like he normally would act when he was on those night excursions. But was there anything, and this is hard to do, but setting aside his, his criminal psychopathic life, I mean, was there anything that could have charmed someone? Was there anything, 
like redeeming or interesting about his personality that people would have stayed married to him and been his drinking buddy and all this? Well, that's hard to say because, of course, he was wearing a mask. We don't know how he was with his friends or with the woman that supposedly loved him. I mean, some guys can completely mask themselves. And sometimes because the person like him or the woman loves him, sometimes they don't see the most obvious of things. But he did this for a long time. It's not like he did it for a couple of months and we're talking about a spree killer who's a serial killer and does it in six months. This guy took decades to get this count up and a count that we don't know how many women are on it. So I believe that if you take apart time-wise a year, how many hours in a year or how many days in a year, 365, so of those 365 days, he goes out and kills, let's say, three or four days. He's got another 350 days to act normal. Right. You kind of see how I'm, I'm doing that? It, there's just, it's like the people in, in the United States. How many people are there? There's so many people that if you're missing 100,000, you're not going to miss them that much. It's the same thing with him. He acted normal for the most part. Or he was quirky. But they just thought that's who he was. Right. Plus, I mean, he just doesn't have a lot of accountability because we're going to get into in this next segment, there's a serious dropping of the ball or just turning a, a shoulder to a lot of these crimes as you know, more and more uh, young women are found in alleyways. So why don't we get into that? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's a sad situation. And, you know, we as, well, not me, obviously, but the general public has these expectations of, of law enforcement. And not to stick up for them or to put them down, it's hard in Los Angeles to keep up with all the homicides that go through those, well, through LAPD. You have 60 seconds remaining every week, every day, every month, every year. There's so many of them. It's a huge city with, what, 14, 15 million people in that general vicinity? So, um, but as we mentioned, they were, most of them were sex workers. So the priority is on other crimes that have more upstanding citizens that reflect votership in the polls. And that's sad, but it's the truth. Yeah, so kind of going along with what you're saying, um, there is essentially an epidemic of these dead sex workers. That's kind of a crude way to say it. But, you know, in in South Central L.A., there's, I mean, for example, there's a guy named Lewis Crane who's this fourth-grade dropout, just big, dumb, you know, Lenny of Mice and Men type of guy just roaming the streets and... Uh, a lot of people like that. And initially, so this is when this thing starts picking up a little bit of steam because the detectives are thinking that these cases might be connected. Um, so at first, they're calling just this this epidemic the Strawberry Murders. Um, and I wasn't around in the 80s. I didn't know what this slang means. Do you know what a strawberry is? No, that's a good one. I don't know. I mean, in, uh, in Spanish, fresa means like someone that's cool, but I don't know. I don't think it means that. So please tell me if you know. It's apparently a woman who exchanges sex for drugs. I didn't know it. And I'm, huh. I'm pretty, I got my ears to the street. And so the, anyway, that's, a, I can tell. that's a dumb, uh, that's a dumb name that didn't catch on. Uh, but they start, they, the LAPD forms a task force, which as many as 30 detectives worked on this, I don't know if all at once, and it's called the Southside Slayer Task Force, and they can't really figure out if this is one guy or, or multiple guys, and, and eventually they, they kind of come to the conclusion, publicly speaking, that they're not connected. However, I think as you touched on yeah. about elections and all this, you know, there were protests outside the LAPD because 
uh, Richard Ramirez, you know, he's getting all this attention and all this coverage. And what's the, the major difference between the people that Ramirez targets and the people that Franklin targets? Well, obviously, they're, they're white or Asian. They're not black. And upscale, you know, middle middle to upper middle class neighborhoods, too. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And this is a very interesting time in technology as well. And, and it goes to me so the audience knows that this is before DNA was DNA, where if you left a piece of DNA, they found it, they would match you because all felons are on a database. Anybody has been convicted after 2004 or you're in custody in 2004 or parole or probation, your parole officer or the prison you're at will forcibly take from you if you won't give it up your DNA, your blood sample, and it goes into a large database. That is before this. And it's actually at that very cusp in 2003 and four where this comes to light because they finally start doing that. They start taking people's DNA, felon's DNA, and but they're getting no hits. This guy's not in the system. Whoever is doing it is not in the system because obviously when he was convicted in 1974, there were no DNA tests. So LAPD is stumped. They don't know what to do. But what they do do is they begin to expand, and this took some pretty good detective work. I'll give them this because this was smart. Since they didn't have his DNA and they could never find it, they figured let's let's look for a close match, somebody maybe familiar with him, a family member, and they begin to expand the DNA search. And you know what? They got a hit, and the hit was a guy by the name of Christopher. Who is Christopher? He's the Grim Reaper's son. And he had been arrested for weapons charges. So what the detectives did was, since they knew it wasn't him, but the person was obviously related to him, they kind of staked out to see who it was that was close to the guy. Because the son was obviously too young to be the killer. So, sure enough... They uh, start looking around and they find that his father, Franklin, has a rape in his, in his jacket. He's been around for a while and they start to zero in on him. But they don't have his DNA. They just can't take it. They don't want to ask for it because it'll give it away that they're looking at this guy. So the detectives actually follow him around and one of them poses as a, a waiter at a pizza joint. And when Ronnie, Lonnie Franklin throws away or discards his pizza, the guy bags it and they run tests. And you know what? They come back positive. Lonnie Anderson, I mean, Lonnie uh, Franklin is their guy and they know it. I love the creativity of it. I love it. It makes me giddy with joy when things that happen in movies actually happen in real life. But how does that work? I mean, a detective or or a a forensic person or or whoever it is, someone from the LAPD approaches this pizza restaurant and says, I'm going to work here and kind of wait until this guy comes in. Yeah. I'm just picturing what you say to that as the proprietor, you know, like, well, I, I think what really happened was, they followed them. They saw him go to the restaurant, start eating. The law enforcement officer went to the front and said, hey, I'm LAPD. We have a suspect here. I want to pretend that I'm a waiter. I need to get this. And that's exactly what they did. He picked up trash like any other person. And God, I mean, he could have done it that way. Or he could have easily waited till the guy just left and picked up and walked away with it and took it to the lab. Right. But the bottom line is you're right. It is interesting how sometimes movies and real life, and that was a smart move. That um, law enforcement officer, who he was, smart guy, and he got his mad because it came back positive. It took a few days, I think a few weeks back then, but um, Lonnie Franklin was the killer. They found, how they got him was they found his saliva 
on a lot of these workers, a lot of these young ladies, as well as these um, other women. They found us alive on there, and that was the match. So, you know, when they when they arrested him, it shocked everybody in the neighborhood, of course. They never thought it was him. And a lot of people protested that they, that they were singling out an African-American man who was a pillar of the community, went to church, he was you know, a worker, he had friends, he had a family. But the truth is that he was 100% guilty of those crimes. And I, I feel comfortable saying that, Matt, because as I said, I observed him. Someone who's normal, someone who's not a serial killer, doesn't get arrested for 10, 15 murders, comes to death row, and it starts buying photographs of African women African women that look just like his victims. It's, it's just him doing what he always did, except now he didn't have to wear a mask anymore. Is there, when on this uh, protective custody serial killer yard, is there like a hierarchy? I mean, do the most heinous crimes, the most grotesque, you know, mutilations or, or the, the body count, the victim count, are they competitive about this kind of stuff or are they, they're all kind of seen as equals among themselves? Well, well it's interesting you say that because, you know, these guys are always together, but it really isn't among themselves that the competition exists. It's among their fans. And these people that buy their signatures or photographs and come visit them, the groupies that come, they're looking, the groupies are looking for the most diabolical of them, the most heinous, the most the guy with the most body counts. Those are the people that compete about these guys. They usually just hang out in the yard and they talk. They all think that they're, you know, God's gift to whatever community they're in. It's interesting because a couple of like the Riverside killer, Bill Suff, we call him the little professor because he thinks he knows everything. He, he fancies himself an editor. He fancies himself a ladies' man. And he's uh, none of those things. But yeah, so there's a bit of competition about how intelligent they feel they are amongst themselves, but never about their body counts. That's left to the groupies. Yeah. Yeah. You got to wonder, because obviously this guy had this deep seated hatred. It's not even a strong enough word toward women, but you know, he's also, and who knows where that came from, but he's this nerdy kind of uninteresting guy. But I guess I'm, I'm just uh spitballing here a little bit incoherently, but if this guy, you know, cleans himself up, goes to the gym every week, you know, uh, becomes successful beyond a journeyman um, mechanic working on, you know, burnt out wrecks in his backyard and whatever he's doing. I mean, physically, there's no real difference between this guy and Damon John of Shark Tank. Uh so <laughs> what I'm getting at is if this guy improved himself, <laughs> you know, made some money, was a respectable person and women actually wanted to give him attention because he had something to offer society, would, would this have um, fizzled out a little bit or do you think it still would have just been there no matter what? Yeah, absolutely not. As I said before, and I'm sure there's going to be some experts that disagree with this, Serial killers are a very small percentage. They're, it's down to 1% of 1% of killers or less. They are wired this way. Lonnie Franklin would have turned out to be the same guy had he grown up in Pacific Palisades, had he been, had a rich family. It wouldn't have mattered. But what do I base this on? Let me tell you. There are serial killers here whose brothers are doctors. They have a sister who is a care worker, a social worker. Their other brother is a lawyer, and they're serial killers. There's another guy I know here that his brother is a fireman. His other brother is a police officer. 
his parents, one's a doctor, one's a social worker. They grew up in the same house. One is a serial killer, the other one's a pillars of society. Now, we could argue that there's a possibility that somebody molested him in a dark alley, so sure, we could argue that. Nah. Serial killers have particular little bumps in a road that they respond differently to. If they saw a, tra a traumatic event, they were treated a certain way. Some other kids become doctors, they try harder, they go to school, others turn into drug addicts. The ones that turn into serial killers, they were wired a certain way. It took certain events in their life to turn them that way. But they were going to be bad anyways. Lonnie Franklin was built that way. There's nothing that you and I or anybody in society could have done to change him. And his actions after he's convicted, he's on death row, tell me that and prove my point. You know, I've seen him receive photographs and there happens to be a woman that doesn't appeal to him for a certain body type or a certain race and he would discard it like nothing. He wouldn't even look at it. He'd continue on with what he was doing with an intensity. This guy wasn't looking at him like, oh, that's a, that's a beautiful woman. Oh, it's great. Like a normal guy would look at a, I don't know, Playboy magazine or something. When he was looking at these photographs, there was such an intensity and such a physical reaction to the photographs that had anyone filmed him and showed it to nine out of ten people in the world, they would have looked at that and said, there's something wrong with that guy without even knowing him. So what's your theory? I mean, is there... Is this a, why is this guy wired like this? Is there a genetic mutation that goes on? Are there's some research that being exposed to certain bacteria in utero can affect brain chemistry? Is there an evolutionary reason? Did people that indiscriminately killed other people, did they used to be useful, you know, to, to just, uh, kill someone who was stealing the grain or whatever? Uh, like, why does this guy exist? And why did, you know, a decent number of them exist? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't think anybody can tell you the exact reason. I don't think it's evolution. Um, these are the wolves of society picking off the weak. No, I, I don't believe that. What I believe is that, and I don't think it's, it's a particular, you know, something that happened because of an infection. No, these guys are wired a certain way because that's the way they were created. Um, not all of them that are created this way turn into serial killers. Certain, um, if you want to call it, uh, traumatic events happen and they responded to a certain situation a certain way and that led to the chain of events. And with this guy, of course, we see in 1974, he gang rapes in the military a child with a couple other buddies. No one does that. I mean, this isn't something that's normal. If you and I are on a club together and our buddy Jimbo there tells us, hey, let's get in the car and this girl's here, but you know, let's rape her while we do this, we're probably going to punch his face in or, or say, what the hell's wrong with you? This guy didn't. It was okay with him. And it was so okay that when the girl told him that she wanted his phone number, he mainly thinks his ego tells him, oh, she must have liked this. This is great. No, no, this guy, and I would, I would love to find those other guys, those other creeps that did that too with her to see where they turned out, but I'm willing to bet they weren't or not serial killers. But this guy, it, 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 serial killers are interesting because serial killers are interesting because you can never tell which one or what traumatic event is going to flip them. There's Randy Kraft, there's Joseph Nasal. All these guys have certain picks to them that are all different. The one thing they have in common is they like to kill. And it's something they relish. It's not like they kill, they feel remorseless. They have no remorse. This guy, Lonnie Franklin, kills and he gets photographs later of women that look like the women that he killed so he can relive the moments. That is a wiring situation. And, and look, the proves the point is that 
in, in later, after his arrest, after his conviction in 2011, law enforcement linked six other women to him in, in L.A. Six more. And those six women died in that 14-year period that they said, that's why they call him the Grim Sleeper. And as you mentioned, he started off as the South Side Slayer or a South Side Killer. Um, so the name the Grim Sleeper obviously doesn't fit. And then even later, the six more cases come up where he's again implicated. So by all accounts, his body count is well over 30, uh, 25, not the 10 that he was convicted of. And those 10 were all black women except one that was not black and one man. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see these guys, and as long as I've watched them, I can't tell you why they do what they do. I wish I could, but I can't. Every one of them is different. What they have in common, no remorse, no conscience, and they relish what they do. They actually like it. That's why some of them are good at it. You know what they say, that if you love what you do, you don't work a day of your life? These guys love what they do. They have to do it. It's not they wake up and like, oh, man, I got to go kill somebody. No, they anticipate it. They salivate before it. There's something wrong with these guys, and it's the reason that most convicts in prison want them dead. Yeah. Uh, I do think this guy, you know, it's it's kind of a catastrophe of the system. You know, early on in his murdering career, a guy sees him dump a dead body, gets the entire license plate. They find him parked at a church, and I can't find any information, but how does that not go anywhere? And then, you know, later on, after he's, you know, ha has double-digit victims, uh, Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa and Police Chief Bratton never held one press conference, never did one press release, did not address this publicly. The public was getting the information from the LA Weekly, who was, you know, busy coming up with dumb nicknames and headlines like the Strawberry Murders. But, uh, you know, I'm sure people were, were terrified, but nonetheless, it, this should have stopped. This should have stopped at a couple murders, you know. Yeah, but that's, that's exactly what he counted on. And I don't think he planned this by saying, oh, look, if I kill these type of women, um, they're not going to look because no one cares about sex workers. I think that he killed what he felt compelled to kill. Um, the reasons that these murders went on for so long. And I don't know that this would have made a difference. I mean, we don't know this because DNA was, was infancy. You can't cover every square foot of South Central LA. And there were, as you mentioned, there was other serial killers working at that time in South Central Los Angeles. And they were killing sex workers as well. And they were killing black sex workers. So I believe that these particular politicians swept under the rug and they appealed more to the people that were being killed. They were addressing issues that were Really, the voters, the people who vote for them, they were always concerned about their interest and what they were complaining about, not what the African-American community was, was uh, complaining about. And unfortunately for those women and uh, others that happened to fall in that same category, they were not looked at with a complete, sound, sober eye to see exactly what was going on because it was obvious what was going on that they had a serial killer that was killing African-American um, sex workers and a 25 pistol was being used. Yeah, and I think that, you know, sometimes we're, in my opinion, a little too sensitive sometimes, and the word racism gets thrown around, kind of diminishes the point. But this is actually racist, in my opinion. Uh, you know, to have Mayor Antonio... Villarigosa, that's not his real name, by the way. His name's Tony Villar. And Police Chief Braden, whose track record is poor uh, on that on that issue, to never acknowledge it is uh, is racist. It just is. Yeah, I agree. 
I completely agree. But yeah, he got away with it for a very long time. Ended up on San Quentin's death row with a body count of that they know of of at least seventeen, and with the other twelve women that they have now connected to him or linked them to, you know, we're talking, you know, twenty nine murders, possibly even more. And as I said, there were a number of other killings prior to nineteen eighty four that were not looked at. The DNA was disposed of, it was thrown away, the cases were not handled properly because DNA was not an issue then. They didn't know the existence and how to uh, protect it and cultivate it as well collect it. And I think that served his purpose. A lot of serial killers get away with murder in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s because technology had not caught up to them. And, um, you know, in episodes to come, we're going to talk about some of these serial killers that were prolific. They killed... <laughs> Not 10, not 15, not 30, not 50, but upwards of hundreds of women. And they got away with it because technology, what we see on CSI, was basically fiction. No one knew about it. So, yeah, really scary stuff there. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into all that stuff uh, in the future. To put a bookend on this, Lonnie... Franklin Jr. at age 67, found dead in his cell in San Quentin prison. Never released the cause of death. I don't know if there was anything nefarious or suspicious about his death or or not, but... Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, he... Um, you know, there's always rumors on death row about Lonnie and why died and you know, some people suggest it could be COVID other people suggest and again this is something that I don't know because I, I, I wasn't there I, I, I haven't heard this from the person directly and I plan on interviewing the person I haven't caught up with him yet he's a little elusive when it comes to talking about this but one of his neighbors that was there the night that he passed away died uh, suggests that something uh, out of this world happened that paranormal events led to his death. Um, I've gotten a little bit of feedback on what that was. Some of the people say I'm very cold. Some of the things we've talked about that happened on death row, a number of deaths happened here, they're unexplained. Guys just die. They hang themselves. They're found dead with their eyes open like they were scared to death. With Lonnie, and I think you said as well that no one really knows how his autopsy has not been released. But it suggested that his demise came from something paranormal. Well, we're going to explore that, and once you uh, do your interview, hopefully we'll get some answers. Uh, until then, I have been Matt Ralston. And I'm Willie May Noguera, and these are the Death Row Diaries. Please be safe, and always know your surroundings. We'll see you next time.